the word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those even under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now even much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For this same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that he is a son with his father, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel." Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and he may be, and I may be less sorrowful. 
Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he, became, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. Bless us as hearers of it, and make us to be doers of not hearers only. We pray that you would minister to us this morning, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to what you have for us, and may we follow accordingly. We give ourselves to you completely, unreservedly, and unwaveringly. We are yours. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The aim of discipleship is conformity to the image of Christ. When we hear that word discipleship, we typically think of the communication, the giving and receiving of information. We think of discipleship programs and discipleship methods. We think of discipleship books and what we're taught. We think maybe of a 12-week program, program. We think of meeting together on Tuesday nights. But discipleship is not just about information. It's not about just what we learn and learning more about Jesus. It is actually about being transformed into His likeness. He who created us in His image will not suffice until that image is restored in us. And so that's why Jesus' call in discipleship is not to take a book home with us and read it, study it, and take a test on it. But His call to us is like the call to His disciples, His first disciples, those fishermen and those tax collectors. Follow me. Come And be with me. Come to my table. Come and learn from me. And when he invites us to come, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he bids us come and die. He leads us into the lives of others. Because the aim of discipleship is conformity to the image of Christ. He wants to make us like him that's why we were created even that's not a plan b that god has for us he created us in his image he created us in his likeness the lie of the devil was so cunning in that he tempted eve saying that god doesn't want you to be like him but god had already made her like him John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, the reluctant founder of Methodism, I should add, declared this to be the sole purpose of the church, the making of disciples, the bringing of men and women, boys and girls, drawing people into the transforming love of Jesus. Whatever accomplishes this purpose is the work of God's Spirit in the world. Making people to look like Jesus. 
to be like him, to come and be with him. Here in chapter 2 of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Paul is inviting these Philippian believers to a radically different and transformed life. A life that is very different and that is transformed from that life that they used to live. He invites them into a life of self-giving, a life of self-surrender. He speaks of them having one mind and being of the same love, being in one accord, being united together as the people of God in unity. And he draws out a couple of specific ways that that oneness, that unity, that self-givingness is expressed. In verse 3, he tells them to consider others as better than yourselves. Stephen M. R. Covey, son of the guy that wrote the book, said, we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their behavior. Isn't that exactly right? We mess up. We do the wrong thing. We say something offensive. We say, no, no, no. Well, I didn't really mean that. But we see someone else mess up. Someone else word something perhaps as we wouldn't have worded it. And we immediately judge just that behavior, not the motive of the heart. Perhaps, like me, you might have found yourself doing that even this past week. But Paul says, consider others, not as your equal. You know, that's what, that's what our society is built around, right? And that's what we hear on the news constantly now is others are our equal. But Paul, Paul goes one step further. He says, no, consider others as better than yourselves. Someone said, we assume the worst of others and the best of ourselves. We paint ourselves in the best possible light and we assume others to be in the worst of possible lights. But Paul would not have the Philippians to live that way and Jesus would not have us to live that sort of way. Consider others as better than yourselves. In verse 4, Paul says, Look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. Now, if you are following along with me, some of you know what translation I read from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. You might have said, hey, wait a minute, Pastor just left out a couple of words there, a couple of important words, right? The New King James does read, let each of you look out not only for your own interests or his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I hate to tell you this, but that's not in the text. Not only, but also is not in the text that Paul wrote. It seems like all of our modern translations try to tuck those words in, but they simply are not there. Paul 
plainly says, look out not for your interests. Not not only, but just not for your own interests. But look out for the interests of other people. Not in addition to your own interests. Not once you've taken care of yourself, then also look out for the interests of others. He's calling the Philippians to a life of radical self-givingness. Where we, as it were, don't even see ourselves. We're not part of the equation. We simply live for the sake of others. For the sake of the person before us. It seems like the NIV is the only, the only translation that I've come across that actually does say, look out not for your own interests, but the interests of others. We play around with this. We try to make it fit with our popular theology. A theology of self and others. Not the theology of self-giving for the sake of others. Paul highlights and draws attention not even to his own example, but to the example of two named individuals. Timothy, whom we know well from his other writings. He wrote two epistles to Timothy. Several of his other epistles he writes with Timothy, it seems here that this letter to the Philippians was being delivered by the second man, Epaphroditus, who seems to have been the Philippian pastor who came to check on Paul. But Paul here is writing and he speaks of Timothy. He says, I hope to send Timothy to you at some point in the very near future. In fact, I hope myself to come as well, but I'll send him as soon as I know what's going on here. Remember, Paul's in prison. But he says, I'm going to go ahead and send now Epaphroditus because I know of your concern for him. He uses Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of this radically different life of self-givingness. He highlights the faithfulness of Timothy. I've got no one else like him. No one else who lives simply and solely for the sake of others. I said that this life of self-giving is different. And you don't find it everywhere. Paul, though, found it in Timothy. And he highlights also the longing, the great longing that Epaphroditus had for his congregation. Notice how Paul speaks of, I don't know how else to put it, but... This, the coherence of love, the, 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 the wedding and, and intermeshing of love that he has for the Philippians, that the Philippians have for him, that the Philippians have for Epaphroditus, that Epaphroditus has for Paul. It seems like whatever is going on with the other is affecting the self. Paul hurts when the Philippians hurt. And the Philippians hurt when they hear that their pastor Epaphroditus is hurt. And he says, oh yeah, he, he was hurting. He was suffering bad. He was sick even to the point of death. I thought we might lose him. And you heard of that. And you were concerned. And I'm concerned for you. But he's well now. 
And so I want you to see him so that I might rejoice when you rejoice. This, this again, coherence or, or, or intermeshing of love, rejoicing together, suffering together, laughing together, hurting together. That's what the body is to function like. You ever notice when your back is out of line or feels weird? It's not very long before your head starts hurting. Sometimes it's kind of the other way around. You realize you've got a headache. And then as you kind of begin to get your bearings, you realize, man, it's my back. I think that's the origin of it. That's how a body functions. Health in the body affects the whole body. Hurt in the body affects the whole body. And Paul, as he calls the Philippians to this radical life of self-givingness, of other-interestedness, consider others as better than yourselves. Look not for your own interests, but those of others. As he calls us to this life, he calls us to function as a healthy, living, life-sharing body. The interest of a part of the body is not on that part of the body. The interest of, the part of, of a part of a body is on the body and the other parts. And it's important that we get that straight in our minds because this is the mind of Christ. It is the work of God's Spirit to give His people the mind of His Son. That is what God is at work in our lives to accomplish. To make us to think like Jesus thinks. To see the world as Jesus sees the world. To think of others as Jesus thought of others. And He provides this beautiful hymn of praise and celebration to us in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2 here. When he begins talking about what the mind of Christ was like, he was exalted and elevated. It was not robbery for him to be called like God. He was with God. He was one with Him. He was in the beginning. In fact, Paul would elsewhere say that He made all things. God made all things through Him. Jesus, His Son. But He empties Himself and humbles Himself and submits Himself all the way down to the point where He became one of us. And He didn't stop there. He didn't just come to participate in the human race. He came to redeem it. And He redeems it by His death. And not just His death, but death on a cross. A death of one who was rejected and was abandoned, was sent outside But he who emptied himself, humbled himself, surrendered himself, sacrificed himself, Paul says, 
has been highly exalted. God has raised him up and given him the name that is above every name, the name before which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You know what that word Lord means? Supreme. The end all be all. The one before whom all will submit themselves. This is the mind of Christ. And it is important that we begin to be minded like Him. There's a certain character or personality that's found in a family. You know what it's like. If you come over to our house, you'll know that the character and personality of our family is loud. It is loud. It's Sometimes fun, sometimes kind of overwhelming. But families have a certain character, a certain personality about them. When you're around the family, it always, you always kind of know what to expect, unless you don't know what to expect. If you're an outsider coming into the family, you're not quite sure what you're going to get. Is dinner going to be nice and proper where everything's kind of laid out, or is everything thrown on the table and everybody's fending for themselves? But if you've been before, if you've been around the family enough, you tend to know what to expect. Because there's that character, that personality that every family has. Some families are, have a, a bad character, a bad personality. Others we would describe as good. Some are dry and others are fun. Some are obnoxious. Some are boring, to be honest. But every family has a certain character about it, a certain personality that it's known for or that it can get known for. God is making us into His sons and daughters, bearers of the family image who think like the family, who live like the family, who are minded like the family. He wants to share His character with us. Why is it important that we get in, get with the program of this self-surrendered life? This ability to be able to rejoice together as the people of God to live together, to be in unity together, to, be, to consider one another better than ourselves and to look out for the interests of you, not me. It's important, not just because this is the mind of Christ. That ought to be enough. That really ought to be kind of a, an open and shut case. This is how Jesus thinks. Think like this. But also, only this will draw the world to Jesus. Anything short of a church that looks like Jesus will simply not do. We, unfortunately, to the detriment of the church, to the detriment of ourselves, we pride ourselves in our fallenness in our brokenness, 
and in our sinfulness. We, we say things very proudly, like, hey, don't look at me. Don't expect much from me. I'm not perfect. After all, I'm only human. News nugget, Jesus was human. The scriptures call him the man. The perfect man. What humanity was supposed to look like. See, that's the whole point of verses 5 through 11 is that he became like us. St. Athanasius in the early church said, He became like us to make us like Him. And what's more, Jesus is able to heal what's broken. He is the great physician. Not just of our bodies, He is that indeed, but also of our souls and of our minds. He is the great physician. He can heal what is broken. He can fix what is twisted. He can put back into order our lives that are disordered. God is at work in you. Paul says, work out your own salvation. And notice here, he's not talking about individualistically just me and Jesus working this out. He is talking to a local church. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. God is providing the will and the ability He is at work in you. He is at work in me. He is making us to be bearers of his family image. And we, together, are invited to cooperate with him. To yield ourselves. To surrender ourselves. To put ourselves before him and say, Lord... Whatever you're able to do with this, would you do it? I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of looking out for number one. I'm tired of defending myself, tirelessly protecting myself. Lord, I want to surrender myself to you to your people. As the prophets would say, and Moses, perhaps the chief of the prophets in the Old Testament would say, quit being stiff-necked. We always want to pause and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Paul's calling for too much. He's inviting me into too much. I'm not ready for that. I'm not good enough. I can't do that. Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know my brokenness? Doesn't he know my fears? Doesn't he know the things that I have problems with? 
But Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Come on, we're on a journey. We're the people of God. God has put us together as his family. He's called us together. He invites us to share life together, to suffer together, to hurt together, to weep together, to laugh together, to rejoice together. You know, it's, it's sometimes um, a little discouraging, a little demoralizing when you have to celebrate alone. You know, something good happens, you got no one to share it with. Something exciting and you feel like everybody else is just kind of doing their thing and Paul invites the Philippians to rejoice together. He says, I'm rejoicing. You rejoice with me. I'm glad. You be glad with me. And as you're glad, as you're rejoicing, I'll be glad and I'll rejoice with you. That's what a family does. That's not what your family does. You need to work on it. I would say get another family, but not going to do that. But families are called to hurt together and to rejoice together. You know what? Times are tough. I, I, I keep mentioning the news, you know, we see it on the news, we see it, you know, on our Facebook feeds and Twitter feed. Please stay away from Twitter. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat kidding. It can be depressing to see what all is going on in the world. And if it's got you down, turn it off. Eject from it. Get away from it. I would much rather rejoice and celebrate with you as my church family than worry about everything that's bad in the world. That may seem callous. But God does call us to live as lights in the world. And so the Christian invitation is not to just get away from and block out the world. It is to come together as God's people, to be transformed together by Him, to rejoice together as He invites us to be spent, to spend ourselves as His people for the sake of the world. It is the indwelling life of the triune God that shapes the life of the church. God's own self-givingness that models the self-givingness, invites us into the self-givingness that we are to have as a church. It is the will of God to turn our lives outward Breaking the grasping hold of sin. And he does this transformative work in the life and the love of the church. 
This is how Jesus thinks. And this is the only type of character in a church that offers hope to a world that is constantly grasping, constantly clawing, constantly warring, warring and worrying, and constantly looking out for self. Only lives that are so given to Jesus, so surrendered to Him, that they care not for their own interests, but for the interests of one another. Only that type of life can offer hope to lives that are hopeless. And it's a joyful thing to get to that place. We fear it. We're scared of it. We're intimidated by it. We think, no, I can't do it. And like I said last week, no, you can't do it. But God can do that in you. But it is a joyful thing to get to the end of yourself. To get to the point where your motivation is like the motivation of Jesus. Whatever it takes for them, I'll do it. Whatever it takes for you, I'll do it. When we get to the end of ourselves, we can rejoice together as His people, as His family. He invites us to surrender. Let's pray.